five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Right, that was uh, Scott Wheeland and Stone Temple Pilots' Dancing Days. I really wanted to play the Led Zeppelin version, which I think is better, but um, I don't. I don't think there's. I don't know. I, I didn't think there was any real like studio or live version. Look at my shirt; it's all fucking stained. I apologize for that. Jasper, quality control today is not good. Not good. Good morning, everybody. Scott Wheeland, another casualty on the rock and roll highway. He was looking a lot more like Keith Richard than Robert Plant in that uh, in that rendition of dance. I love Dancing Days. I think that's a it's a great song. Actually, it's, it's one of my favorite Led Zeppelin songs. Who, by the way, Led Zeppelin. And I was not a Led Zeppelin. I mean, I listened to Led Zeppelin when I was in high school. Okay. I think I owned one Led Zeppelin album, but my friends had Led Zeppelin on all the time. So I didn't need the, I didn't need the album. And uh, so I, you know, I, I liked them, but it, it was like, uh, it was just too much. It was everywhere. You go to a party, it was Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin. And I was, a, you know, I was a bit of a contrarian. So I, I was trying to find other music, but in, you know, in retrospect, they're an incredible band, probably the devil's best band <laughs> on the planet at the time. Right, Jasper? Jasper Jasper likes a little Led Zeppelin. Who's your favorite band? Who's your favorite band? Oh, the Stray Cats, of course. You love the Stray Cats, don't you? Yeah. You were a Stray Cat at one point. Yes, you were. Now you're, now you're a cuck. Jasper's a cuck. You're a cuck. You're a cuck. I've seen other cats slap you. How is everybody? Hey, it's another day in the global neighborhood. And we're going to try to go over a few things here where, uh, these are news blips that have gone under the radar while we were debating the great slap. Now, I, I do want to render a final decision and judgment upon the great slap. And here's my final decision and judgment. I think that they had something planned, that there was going to be a thing that would come off of that joke. But I don't think Chris Rock knew it was going to be a slap. That's what I have. That's what I have determined. 
And the reason why is because he doesn't back up, right? He knows, he probably knows that Will Smith is coming up. And apparently the two of them have a bit of a history with each other, like a, a beef, you know, like whether it's real or not, who knows. But I do believe he slaps him. Now, when he slaps him, he's very clear. And I've played this before. He uses his fingertips, right? He uses his fingertips and he doesn't use the, the entirety of his hand. If he'd used the entirety of his hand, okay, which meant that he would use his palm and the lower ridge of the palm. And if he really delivered that with force, he could have broke Chris Rock's jaw. Because Will Smith is kind of, you know, he's, he's, he's a large man. So he hits him with his fingertips. And when you look at Chris Rock's face, it is sideways afterwards. So there was contact there. He had, he made contact and Chris Rock wasn't faking the sideways part. He, you could tell when somebody gets hit, their face kind of, you know, goes left or right, depending upon the direction that the hit came from. And then Chris Rock is, I, I do believe he was, what's the word I'm looking for? I think he, he was he was kind of stunned. I talked about this yesterday when, when the thing happens, when people do something that, that is outside of their, um, like how often do people walk up to you and slap you? It rarely happens, right? So you don't really have a, like a memory bank for that or or even getting punched. If you were uh, in a boxing ring, you would know what it would be like. And so you would have some kind of reference point. So when that event happens, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. The problem is, is that we don't have these reference points so that when shit happens in our life, we're kind of like deer in the headlights. Uh, you know, uh, how do I process that, right? And he was like that. He He screwed up the thing about the documentary and then when Will Smith starts shouting at him, I think that's I think that's real. And I and and I don't think that was part of the script. And what I think happens is that somewhere in that humiliation ritual, because that's what it was, it was a humiliation ritual. That when that happens, the devil comes in. And takes and run and runs, runs the show. Runs Will Smith, uh, runs Chris Rock. Just runs the show. And that's when things are out of control. That's when chaos ensues. That's when Will Smith starts to yell, "Keep your wife's name out my fucking mouth!" Over and over again. And Chris Rock is, I think a bit subdued and surprised. He says, okay, I, I, you know, I will. I mean, he, he becomes very submissive at that point. So now Will Smith is considered to be the great protector. And there are people actually defending him, defending Jada's honor. And of course, the other story is that uh, apparently Pfizer has a new alopecia drug. And there's... The, uh, the, the, the word to street is that she does not have alopecia and that what she is dealing with is she's dealing with the byproduct of having her hair like processed and teased and all these things that have been done to it in order to make it look a certain way. 
probably more white and less black, seriously. And it's a byproduct of that. So she's got this, uh, this damaged hair, which she's taken down to, you know, ground zero level. And just a few days before that, she did a, a, a video on Instagram where she's on her couch and she's commenting about how much she loves her hair or lack of hair. So she's okay with it. What kind of message does that send? It sends a weird one, actually. So if she's really okay with her hair, then why would that joke be such a big deal? It, it wouldn't be. She could have laughed, he could have laughed. and But then we have to move into this next phase. So then the, uh, the question we ask is, did Will Smith know he was going to win the Oscar for King Richard? His portrayal of Richard Williams, who is uh, the father of the Williams brothers. So this is something I don't really get. I was watching Jason Whitlock last night, and I, and I like Jason. I think he's doing God's work, and I love a lot of his guests, although yesterday he had this one guy who's, who he's on the blaze, Steve, Steve Dace or Dees or something like that. Anyway, why do they never, ever, ever mention that the Williams sisters are probably the Williams brothers? That never comes up because when it comes to cultural uh, anchors, positive cultural anchors, I have noticed, and again, this is just, just observation, that there are positive cultural anchors inside the so-called black community that are sacrosanct. Like you cannot question their motivation, their history, their associations with other people. You just can't. You get that with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is Moses. And Martin Luther King was a very, very flawed man. Now, I have seen Jason talk about Jesse Jackson's role in the assassination of Martin Luther King, which is like, oh, he, he, kind, of, he kind of leaned into that when Jesse Jackson was supporting uh, Juicy Smollett. And rightly so, because, because Jesse Jackson was Martin Luther King's road manager. And he was in charge of the rooms. He had Martin Luther King's room changed at the last minute. So there could be access to a window, right? And it was because, well, we want you to be able to wave to everybody out there. Well, the window made it very convenient for somebody to pick him off. And that's somebody not being James Earl Ray, by the way. So Jesse Jackson got a boost. You got to level up. He did so. Jason did talk about that, but you know, I've talked about Martin Luther King. He was a plagiarist. He was certainly a communist. He was trained at the uh, was at the uh, o Overland Academy in uh, Tennessee with 
all these other commies. Yeah, that's where he got his training. Uh, and, of course, the, the dirty rumors that he was a rapist. So not really a very uh, godly man. Now, you could say that somewhere along the way, like, uh, like Paul on the road to Damascus, that he found, maybe he found Jesus, maybe he found the way. And that changed his life and therefore facilitated his uh, extraction from the land of the living. That's possible. But they're like they're they're just figures that you don't you don't really question. And Richard Williams is you know under that umbrella. You don't question Richard Williams. You don't question the fact that there's a really good chance that his daughters aren't really daughters. Well, how could how could that happen? Didn't she have a baby? Did she? We don't know. She maybe looked pregnant. So the cultural icons have to be sacrosanct. And, and, not, and, not, and it's not just in the so-called black community. I mean, we have our own versions of that. Like some people, you, just, you can't say shit about Trump. If, if you go in on, I've lost, I think I've lost subscribers, like paid subscribers because I've been critical of Trump and his, his post-election uh, verbal diarrhea about the vaccines. And being critical of his last year inside of the uh, side of the White House, but there uh, there are just these you know sacred cows that you can't you can't uh, you can't skew you can't you can't slay them. But I have seen that more with figures inside of particular communities. Right. I'm still waiting to see Sean Penn's melted Oscar. When is that going to happen? Is he going to do a live stream with that? He should really what he should do if he is really, really smart. If he was really smart, he would do a pay-per-view of the actual smelting and get people to pay it, pay for it, watch it, and then send the money to Ukraine. Send the money to Ukraine so they can um, sharpen their shears and uh, make sure that they're very effective when they go to castrate Russian soldiers. That's what he should do. But he's not that bright. He thinks he's really bright. He's not that bright. It's unfortunate. He's kind of a contemporary of mine. Born in the same year. I think he's born in late August. So I think I think Sean Penn is a Virgo. He's either a Virgo or a late Leo, one of the two. It's disappointing. It's like the people that represent my space and time or have been big fucking disappointments. Obama, born 1961. The first Virgo, Pluto and Virgo president. That's my legacy. That guy. Well, if you're a boomer, you get to live with Bill Clinton. And you get to live with Ronald Reagan. And you get to live with George Bush. Those are your, those are your boomer presidents. Reagan, Bush, Clinton. Not great. So every, I guess every generation has to wear the goat horns. And then we get George Bush, who's, again, part of my gen. He's a little bit older than me. I think he's around uh, five years older than me or something like that. 
born in the, he's a baby boomer. George Bush is a baby boomer. GW2 is a baby boomer. So he's fairly much older than me. So you get another baby boomer president in there, guy who uh, dodged the war, flew for the, what was it, the, the Texas Air National Guard or some shit like that. And we go to Obama, and then we go back in time, and, and, and you, you get uh, President Headroom, who theoretically is, well, he is a, he is a boomer, but, but it's like we were, we were headed, right, with Obama, we were, we were kind of moving forward generationally in terms of candidates. But then we get Trump, then we get we have Biden, and that throws us way back into Boomerville. And um, Harris is Gen X. Generation X, that's your candidate. Kamala Harris. That's what you have. That's what you have to uh, brag about. It's unfortunate because the best people never really show up and they never really get in. And that's why we have the system that we do because number one, it is a system. And number two, the system uh, self, it, it really what it does is self organizes and self selects uh, the candidates based on you know, their lowest common denominators while still appearing to be something presidential. Although that went, all that went out the window in 2020. It was just like, okay, we're, we're going all in on the absurd. We're going to go all in on two people who have absolutely no business whatsoever being in Washington. None. You could make a case for Trump. You could make a case for Trump and his qualifications as somebody in the business world who uh, knows how to play tough, play dirty. There's no, like, if you're really paying attention to Trump, you know who he is, you know what he's about. And there's no glossing over the fact that he's got some skeletons in the closet. You do real estate in New York City and you have to be successful at it. You are playing with shark. You're swimming with sharks. So Trump was, you know, he was another shark, but he was, he was theoretically our shark, right? That, and that's what set him apart. And he, he was gruff and he, he had a way of talking to people that in the middle and lower middle class could relate to him. So there was something, there was still something slightly presidential about Trump, although a lot of people would disagree with me. His inauguration speech was, was fantastic. And the, and when he would do the state of the union speeches, he was, he was like a conductor. He was really, really good at the state. Those state of the union speeches had the feeling of like gravitas. Like there's something going on here that, is somewhat meaningful. He'd bring people up in the audience and, you know, they would be related to stories that uh, were supportive of a different kind of America. 
And I, I thought his State of the Unions were good. Unlike these clown shows that we have now, and they're really just total clown shows. So they, they, they went into clown world with Biden and Harris, and they knew that. They were like, we're going to give you the two most ridiculous fucking candidates that we can. We're going to give you the babbler. We're going to give you the babbler, and we're going to, we're going to give you the, the cackler, the babbler and the cackler. And the cackler was just, a, she was abysmal during the debates. Absolutely abysmal. We're going to give you the one of the people who is the lowest ranked candidate during the debates. There were a few. There were a few guys who people that might have been lower than her, than Kamala. But she was pretty low. I think she was trending at below three percent. That's really really low. Super low. So we're going to give you those two. How you like that? And that's part of this humiliation ritual. It is a humiliation ritual for the masses. All right, let's go to um, the best, absolute best. Chat room on the internet. What is going on here? Let's see who we got. Who we got? We got TJ. What's going on, Tom? Robin asks, are we not men? We are Devo. Sony. There's my man, Ryan. Wendy says, always has the greatest uh, good mornings. Hello, beautiful people. I love that. We're only beautiful because we are here with you this morning. Oh, look at that, Tondar. You guys are sweet. Big hugs. There's so much love. There is so much love going on in the chat today. It must be springtime. Incredible lead singer. Scott Wheeland was a rock star. He was a rock star. You don't get rock stars anymore. Uh, Jason Jason had Hotep Jesus on last night, and he said that that um, Hotep Jesus loved the fact that Will Smith was violent, unexpected violence. And then he said one of the reasons why uh, young white males love hip-hop is because it gives them an opportunity to express their violence. I'm like, okay. He made a good point, actually. He talked about the castration of the uh, white male. He said the white male was the first to be neutered on this continent. And he talked about uh, Victorian-era morals and Victorian-era uh, standards. And that was the, that was the first uh, iteration of declawing the, the white male. And he might be right about that, actually. I don't have any problem with that. That said, you know, rock and roll for American youth offered the same kind of um, rebellion. And and if even if you go back and you know some of the some of these uh, like Led Zeppelin is is you know Robert Plant isn't really muscular, but the music is muscular, right? Ted Nugent, MC Five, Iggy Pop. I mean, these are all bands and artists with like 
a great amount of aggression. And that's where American youth, you know, quote unquote, white American youth would work that stuff out. Van Halen. And then you go into the whole kind of, you know, punk and hardcore scene and thrash. And again, it's very aggressive. You want, you want to see aggression, go, go jump into a mosh pit. So it's, it's not like there weren't these things for, you know, young American males and their rite of passage into the mosh pit, whatever that is. But that was taken away. There was, there was a decision. It's like, we are going to remove rock and roll. And I've talked about this. We're going to move rock and roll just out of the window because it's too rebellious. They don't want, they don't want the, the, the white American male to rebel. And Hotep Jesus talked about this last night, and I thought it was a great point. And it's true. And even January 6th, which I think was a send-up, was a way to once again mute and neuter the voice of protest and, the, and really the energy of violence. Like there, there is, there, there is something about, and I do agree with him on this as well. There, there's something about the threat of violence that is important in some ways. And it was interesting to see Jason debate this point. And I, and I think he doesn't get it, right? He, he saw that Chris Rock, that Will Smith was doing something beneath him and beneath the dignity of so-called black people. And I do agree with him with that, but he doesn't get what Hotep Jesus is talking about. And that he, uh, Hotep Jesus connected free speech to the right to bear arms, which the two are clearly interlocked with. So what happened is that they have declawed the white American male, and they're working on the black American male. They want to absolutely do the same thing. And the social model is people like George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery um, or Jacob Blake. You know, the their iconic figures are dead. They're dead. And they're not just dead, but they're victims. They're victims of police violence. They're the they're the they're the martyrs that the that the social Marxists absolutely love. They love martyrdom. But rock and roll had that and they removed it. And I've talked about this. They basically said, okay, we're going to have three forms of popular music now moving forward. We're going to have hip hop. We're going to have pop. And we're going to have country Western. And country Western is not a rebellious music. No matter what you think of Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and, you know, the whole outlaw music scene, it's not that rebellious. Even those guys weren't that rebellious. So when they, when they took rock and roll out of the contemporary musical canon, again, they kind of declawed, they declawed the, uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male who would use rock and roll as a form of an outlet, right? An outlet, power, aggression. And, it's, and it, look, I'm not trying to make rock and roll 
in, into uh, one of the Abrahamic religions, but it served a purpose. And then they just like, okay, purpose over. You're not going to have that. And so what are the bands that they actually promote? Well, like Coldplay. Coldplay is not dangerous. Coldplay is anything but dangerous. And as much as I really like Radiohead, they're not dangerous. They're introspective. They have hints of paranoia, but they're not dangerous. I was talking with, uh, with, with Ben last night, Ben being uh, one of the invisible members of Chattari, great guy, um, lives in Australia. And by the way, um, Ben's father is in the hospital. Of course, he's going through a major procedure that was happening last night and I was chatting with him and uh, Ben, I'm sure that everybody listening, uh, you know, might have a prayer for your dad and hope that he gets through this and gets out the other side and can, uh, you know, regain his vitality. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping the same. So Ben and I were talking about, we're talking about Nirvana. We're talking about Dave Grohl. We're talking about Taylor Hawkins and the whole high strange around his death, Kurt Cobain's death. Dave Grohl being this kind of figure in central casting and how strange it was that they just went right back on tour, right? They didn't miss a beat, really. They didn't miss, maybe they missed one beat. And then the guy who replaces Taylor Hawkins is uh, Nick Collins, Phil Collins' son. And Phil Collins is a high-ranking Mason. I bet you didn't know that, but he is or I may have talked about it before. He's a high-ranking Mason. So it's interesting that a high-ranking Mason's son fills in for Taylor Hawkins on the Foo Fighters World Tour. Anyway, we were talking about Nirvana and a very interesting article that was um, referencing a lot of the uh, astrological connections with Kurt Cobain, uh, his death, heart-shaped box, and one of the things that Nirvana really did, and I and I think I think this was part of the operation, is that is that Nirvana hooked American youth in. And again, this is you know the the aggression is there in Nirvana. It smells like Teen Spirit is a very aggressive song. And it's, it's, it's a song that's about rebellion. But what happens with Nirvana is that it, it, it's like the bookend of the whole punk movement, which starts in 1977. And the punk movement is anything but interior. It is all out here. It's pushing everything out. It's pushing against Thatcher. It's pushing against... Uh, the, the, the inflation that's going on uh, in England at that time. England was dreary in the 70s. It was pushing against the establishment, establishment rock and roll bands like Pink Floyd, like Yes, uh, like the Rolling Stones, and all these bands that were big and bloated and doing all these massive outdoor festival tours. Punk rock was a push against that, but it was external. 
And then when you get to Nirvana, there is a pushback, but it's more internal. And there is this kind of in, inborn or inbred, I would say, inbred impotence to, to Nirvana. Like they're impotent against the rage that they're feeling. Like they're expressing it, but they're not directing it outwards. And ultimately it's that fire and that rage that winds up consuming people from the inside out because there's no way for them to channel that rage or channel that angst or channel that aggression. And then there's the, the, the Kurt Cobain thing where he may or may not be dead. There's this very strange connection with Kurt Cobain and Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. And they come right on the scene right after Kurt Cobain's death. And there's Rivers Cuomo kind of looks like Kurt Cobain. But in the minds of the uh, youth of America who had quickly taken Nirvana into their, uh, into their hearts and minds, into their cellular memory, now they got to deal with Kurt Cobain's death and suicide, right? Theoretical suicide. And what is suicide? It's one of the most impotent expressions of resolving one's issues. That's what they're left with. Whole generation is left with, you know, their Jim Morrison, their Johnny Rotten, their iconic figure who is raging about what he's feeling inside and how he doesn't fit in to the world. And then he's gone. What, 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 what kind of message does that send all these people that have taken Nirvana, you know, into their emotional body? It's not a great one. And to me, it feels like an operation. And then you get all these other bands that come out of that period. And they're, and they're, they're, they're all on this kind of very emotional, very interiorized, in many ways, impotent um, kind of, you know, emo rock or emo metal. There's, there, there's nothing that they can really do in terms of externalizing their angst. And it feels to me like, so Nirvana comes on the scene in, in 1990. I lived in Olympia, Washington when uh, Nirvana was there. I didn't see them, but they were there and I would hear stories about him. And I'd hear stories about Kurt being at parties and just how fucking weird he was. He was a weirdo. He was like super remote, almost catatonic at times at these parties. And, um, so I lived there. I was, you know, I was kind of in that world. I wouldn't say I was in the world, but the people that were around me were in that world. At that time, I was 30 years old. So if uh, the millennials start to come onto the scene in 1985, they're only five years old when listening to Nirvana. If you go back to, let's say, 1970, right? 1970, you're 20 years old and you're listening to Nirvana. So we're, we're moving into Gen X. Like Nirvana is a Gen X band. And there's a place I'm going with this. 
Nirvana is a Gen X band. And what we see with Gen X is we see the molding of icons inside of Gen X. Like when I was growing up, who, who were the icons when I was growing up? They weren't great, I will say. Like people my age who were iconic and popular were people like Leaf Garrett. Um, who else? Andy Gibb, I guess. Maybe Donnie, uh, Donnie Osmond. Uh, Danny Bonaducci. I mean, Scott Bayo, who's born on my birthday. So these are kind of the, uh, the you know, sort of the icons. And they're, you know, they're all kind of glammy and sort of, uh, you know, pre-hair band stuff, pre-hair metal. They're, they're influenced by, by glam rock. Like, you know, Rex Smith is another guy, I think, who comes around. But, it, it, you know, and in terms of, like, young movie stars during that time, you'd have to look at people like Sean Penn, Tim Robbins. But they become, I think, much more um, popular during those Gen X years. Actually, they become the stars that are associated with Gen X, even though they're a little bit older. <laughs> You've got Johnny Depp, um, the Brat Pack, and they're all kind of very metrosexual. So these are the images and the icons that the male portion of Gen X is growing up with. And I think it's a byproduct of Pluto and Libra and how it impacts men differently generationally under that sign and, and women as well. And I tend to think that the women under Gen X with Pluto and Libra tend to be stronger. They're, I tend to think that, and a lot of it might have to do with the fact that they have Chiron and Aries, which is another thing. And that the women tend to be stronger and more on the, um, I don't want to use the word masculine, it's not quite what it, the, the more on the, the directed guided kind of will oriented expression. And the men are in another place, right? They're, they're not quite the same. They're, you know, so it's the music and it's these icons and Nirvana is a Gen X band. Like you could be, I don't know, maybe you could be five years old and listening to Nirvana and maybe it's your older brother that's listening to it. But if you were born in 1973 and it's 1990, 1991, you're 17, 18 years old, it's right in your wheelhouse. 75, 76, 77, right in your wheelhouse. This is your band, right? And then what is Nirvana demonstrating? Suicide, rage, and impotence. That's it. And one could make a case that with Nirvana, it is really the end of rock and roll and rebellion. They are like killing that chapter because what comes after or right on the heels of the death of Kurt Cobain, well, it's happening kind of simultaneously, but it's hip hop. And hip hop really begins to take off around 1988, 89, you have the crossover with Run DMC and Aerosmith. I've talked about this before. And by the time you hit 1990, who is the most 
popular group in hip hop are about to be, it's NWA. And then we have Ice-T, we have gangster rap, and that is the soundtrack of the 90s. Hip hop and gangster rap become the soundtrack of the 90s. And that's where this kind of torch of aggression is passed. And I understand what uh, Hotep Jesus was talking about because they just, they, they essentially, they ended the operation with the death of Kurt Cobain. You get a bunch of bands after that, but they're just not very interesting. And again, it's all very kind of internal. What do they call it? They called it, um, there was a word for it, a word for their particular type of rock. It's, it's just, it's kind of introspective and whiny and they're, they're, they're lamenting about these dark places and dark spaces that they're in, but they can't do anything about it. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're trying to sonically work it out, but there's no resolution. There's, there's no call to action. And it's because whatever happened with Nirvana left them hanging. Okay. Who else do we have? JJ. Kelly B. Morning All. I actually know today's song. STP. Heard it a million times. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Catherine Kramer. What's going on, Cap? We got double K, double B. Right back to back. Um, CC Jones, I loved STP and Velvet Revolver. Yeah, Scott Whelan's kind of an outlier. Like he's he Scott Whelan is a rock star. I and I think you could make a case that Scott Whelan is really the last rock star. And I know there's a lot of people that hate Stone Temple Pilots, but you could make a case that he's and he comes out of that whole Nirvana way. Like I don't consider Eddie Vedder a rock star. I can't stand any fucking better. And I really didn't, I really didn't dig the, the Seattle scene all that much either. I lived in Seattle when grunge was, I li- I moved to Seattle right when grunge was dropping. And I remember hearing mud honey on the radio and it was a single for burn it clean. And I thought to myself, this is, these were my thoughts. This is the next thing. I could hear it. This is the next thing. It's really brilliant. And all of a sudden, I'm old. Like that was that song was the 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 Maginot line for me. It's like I'm old. Because honestly, I didn't really like it. <laughs> I got it. I understood it. I didn't really like it. So the whole grunge thing was happening around me. And um I just I just went in a different direction musically. It's like, eh, eh. And there was a little bit of a gap there until the whole uh, Manchester scene started to happen for me. And then I started to listen to some of those bands. I'm like, oh, wow, these guys are really good. I like this much better. Okay, who else do we have here? Lisa. Dang, I panic was here a minute ago and there was like nothing going on. Kelly says, my ex-husband was a huge STP fan. So I've heard this on repeat during drunken nights, fun times, how funny. I hope I didn't bring back any traumatized and triggered memories. Uh, There's my man, Steve. 
you guys are man where is where's the moon today is it in aries are we dealing with the aries moon today is this where all the love is about i'm liking it i'm liking it uh let's see the flap that's funny robin Watch Jason all yesterday to get his take on it and his guest take on it. It was a brushstroke. I would agree with that, but I don't. I don't think. I don't think Chris Rock knew that the slap was coming. I think they had something planned. I don't think the slap was part of the uh, was part of the script. Yeah, so he didn't hit him with a solid blow. Will Smith knew that his fingers could do that, right? Could could give him a little uh, smack in the chops. Jerry Lawler said it was fake. He hit Andy Kaufman on Letterman and said that was planned too. They're both actors. I agree. I think the shouting was not expected. I agree with that. And it, so to me, again, this is my... I'm rendering my final verdict. And my final verdict was that it was planned and it was, uh, I'm going to take this shirt out of circulation. I can't wear this shirt again. It was planned and there was part of it that wasn't planned. And the part of it that wasn't planned, that's when the devil crept in. Then Will Smith gets, yeah. and I think it was probably planned for him to win the Oscar too, because Richard Williams was a protector of his sons. I'm sorry, daughters. They're not his daughters. Okay, while you were sleeping, what the hell is going on here on this planet? Well, a lot. So we're going to take a look at some of the things that have been happening while you were sleeping. First of all, the uh, sewer rat known as Tony Fauci is starting to crawl back out of the sewer and into public awareness. He's now talking about the next round of boosters. Oh, yeah. The next round of boosters. That's where this is going. Um, quietly, somebody sent this to me. Let me see if I can pull this up. I'm going to read this message. Oh, that's, um, let's see. This is the wrong, 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 wrong thing. So somebody sent this to me uh, in a message on Twitter. Let's see what we got here. Okay, so this is there's an actual document. Uh, the actual document downloaded here. Okay. So this was sent to me by Aladdin67 on Twitter. And I guess this comes from Jim Stone's website. 
uh, mandatory vaccination for the EU just went through under the radar. It does not matter if the pandemic is over and the vaccine has proven fraudulent, they are going for it anyway. This just came into Gmail from a very reliable source. I'm going to type it in here and take it verbatim. It is completely legit info. Warning, after June 30th, 2022, the European Council has amended Resolution 2361 and no longer objects to compulsory vaccination. So the EU has acted as one with their governing body, and they're essentially saying it's okay, compulsory vaccinations, we got no problem with that. As of July 1, 2022, the EU has announced the legislation for the mandatory EU COVID-19 certificates that deprive you of all freedoms. If you do not have a QR COVID certificate, if there is a majority of member states signing the legislation, compulsory vaccination will be introduced. At the end of 2022, 2023, there will be a digital currency. The EU will impose a digital ID on every EU citizen. The Dutch already have this and are already referring to the EU version on their website. All ATMs will be replaced by QR code ATMs in the near future. Belgium is already installing them in full swing. If these QR code machines are integrated, cash can no longer be withdrawn from banks and or elsewhere. The EU aims to make cash completely worthless within 18 months. The EU resolution permanently deprices every person, deprives every person of their physical integrity. Now there's supposed to be a link for the document. I don't see it here. That was not sent to me. Uh, and digital ID dot NL server. I, so I'm actually working right now with a, um, Uh, I'm actually working with a filter. And I can't get to their website because they don't want me in. But this is, uh, you know, why would this not be true? Why, why would this not be true? While we're wringing our hands and palms over what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in Russia, they are advancing the next the next stage and the next stage will be a combination of the vaccine the next wave of the vaccine the four boosters that are now part of the schedule and will be part of the schedule four more boosters there's that there's going and it's going to be tied to your qr password or your QR record, your QR code and the record of you having those vaccines. And that's how you're gonna transact. It'll be through that QR code. So instead of typing in your uh, ID, your password at an ATM, you'll have a distinct QR code and the QR code will be universal. Think about that. It'll be universal. You won't just have a QR code for your app on your phone for your bank. 
you will have, there will be a universal QR code and you'll show that QR code at the grocery store, at any place that you want to transact to get money out of an ATM. And in order for you to do that, you're going to have to be up to date on your shots. And if you're not up to date on your shots, you're not going to be able to use your QR code and access it through your phone. So we are headed towards the, the great fork in the road here. It's coming. And I would say that more than likely you have about nine to 12 months to somehow prepare for a moment. It may take a little bit longer in the US, but it won't take that much longer because they're doing everything in their power to just completely uh, detonate the US dollar. So this is a global reset and they're rolling it out. And, it, and so what will happen, right? Pay attention to Shanghai because Shanghai has shut down. And what's important about Shanghai, it is a port city. It's a huge port city. Lots of goods get shipped out of Shanghai. And it's also a precursor, right, to whatever, whatever event they could just wheel out next. And the, so the war with Ukraine and Russia, which I think is highly suspect, but let's just, for the sake of so-called reality, that there is a war and that things are happening. I do believe things are happening, but the story behind the things that are happening is not always the real story, okay? But they can't keep that going for forever. And I've talked about this. Like they can only suck as much emotional currency out of people for a limited period of time. And people just don't have any juice left. Unless, of course, they're kind of riding this adrenaline wave of uh, the next thing. I saw this one image on, on Twitter. It was really funny. Somebody had... a. Uh, Outside their door, it was a Black Lives Matter um, poster or some kind of signage for Black Lives Matter. Then there was another sign, which was, you know, get, get vaxxed or something like that. And then the third sign was a Ukrainian flag. And it's like, there you go. They just heard people, they just heard them into this, you know, whatever the next moment and whatever the next, you know, energetic harvest is. They just heard them into that. But they can only have them there for so long. Now, the people who get herded into those moments, there, there is something there for them as well because they have abandoned any kind of real emotion or any kind of, um, real connection to spirituality. So they're dependent upon the event pushers. See, it's a two-way operation. The event pushers will give them the next thing. And, and the people who are emotionally and spiritually bankrupt will take it because, because they need it. They need it. They need it in order to stay alive. It is their emotional and energetic drip line. So, you know, they're complicit in the whole thing. 
but they're complicit because they've been robbed of any, well, not just robbed. They've been apt. They, they abdicated it. Like somebody used their finger and pointed in their back and said, stick them up. I want all your money. And they just gave it to him, right? That's this is the, this is how this is how it's worked. Like these threats, some of these threats are real. None of these threats are like a real gun being pointed at your back. It's a finger, and they've capitulated. So once that happens, you're 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 under the spell, and and if you're really in that wave, you have to wait for the next thing. Because it defines your life, it gives you purpose or gives them purpose, it gives them energy, it gives them meaning, and they just get strung along with this whole thing. They, they, they are complicit. It's a drip line. It's very vampiric, actually, if you think about it. Like these events are the new, uh, the fresh new victim that the system can sink its fangs into. And everybody who participates is like Renfield. The people who are, are the uh, the agenda pushers are the real vampires. And everybody else is just Renfield. They're just getting the sloppy seconds. And they're going mad. Renfield is a very important figure inside of, inside of uh, Dracula. He's symbolic. Because the vampire is not impotent. Renfield is. Renfield is a slave. And that's what this social movement is. They're just a, millions and millions of Redfields. Anyway, that's going on. They're rolling it out in Europe. While you were sleeping, that whole thing is happening, Right. There's a lot of other things that are going on. I could tell you here in Texas, we've had two really significant fires. One up near uh, Temple, Texas, huge. Farmland, cattle. We had another one in Medina County, 400 acres on Saturday. Farmers are complaining they can't get fertilizer. It's an issue. It's a real issue. So we're watching available farmland being bought. We're watching farmland that has been in the hands of real farmers and ranchers being destroyed. And the people that are buying that farmland, they're, they're not family farmers, I can assure you. Um, here in Texas, we've been going through an extremely dry winter. We got some rain last night, but you know, God forbid we go through another drought cycle and everything is like tinder, it's not going to be pretty. And Texas provides a lot of beef. It's a big, big, big beef state. So big that, um, well, beef and beef and milk, right? Because, of course, we get the milk from the cow. It's so big and the lobby is so powerful that it's it's one of the states in the United States that makes it very hard for individuals to farm goats and get milk from goats. Like the hoops you have to jump through to get milk from a goat in Texas, is 
difficult. It's not the same as in say Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, you can raise goats and you can milk them and you can create all kinds of products. It's much more difficult in Texas. Why? Because um, the quote unquote beef industry and the dairy industry has a real lock on that stuff and they don't want any competition. So there's, there's a lot of cows here. And uh, that's going on. So they're engineering a food crisis while we're paying attention to the uh, fake war in Ukraine that it has some very real circumstances. And getting back to the war, people can only hang on for so long. Like people can't have a freaking Ukrainian flag on their Twitter profile or on their Facebook profile or flying outside of their house for the next six months. It'll just lose any kind of energy and immediacy, right? Because they're, they're, they're hooked. Renfield, they're hooked on the Renfield cycle. You know what I mean? They're hooked. So they need the next event. And these planners of these events know that. They have people. So they'll have to roll the next thing out, right? Now, they have to resolve what's going on in Ukraine. Because they can't let the program run. It's just going to, it's going to deplete itself and people won't give a shit. So how will they do that? Well, there's only two things that they can do. They can either make it go. Well, there's three things. They can make it go super kinetic, which means that NATO is involved and the EU is involved. And I mean, more so than they are now that American troops are there and American troops are on the ground fighting Russian troops. That would be kinetic. And that will thrust us into a much more visceral version of World War, quote, unquote, three, just for the sake of evolution in numbers. But then you have to keep going, right? What is what, And what happens after that? What happens after that? What happens after that? And the only, there are three conclusions. If you go kinetic and go full World War III, one, you get to the point, and I've talked about this, where it's 1159.59, and the world is looking at total destruction, and it is pulled back from the edge of the abyss, and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. They vow to never do it again. There's a uh, major movement to get rid of weapons, all weapons, including personal firearms in the United States, they won't be allowed. Uh, the world be forced to come together under a new world order. In fact, they're talking about that right now. There's a bunch of uh, policy wonks in Europe who are meeting to talk about this. And they, within the first 60 seconds, uh, in terms of the opening of that whole thing, we're talking new world order, right? And the new world order is an order where everybody is brought into one rule and one law and one currency that rules all. And so they have to sell people the, they have to sell the people the benefits of this system. And the benefits of the system are the same thing that they sell with COVID. You want to be safe. You want to be safe. You want to experience security. So we'll provide that for you. 
in order to do that, we need to remove any potential threat. Whether it's people, whether it's ideologies, whether it's speech, whether it's the right to bear, we need to remove all of that because all of those are a threat to your safety. And when they're all removed, then we can have an order. We can have an orderly world and people can feel safe and we will provide for them and their personal safety. You won't have to worry about anything. And you'll have a social credit score just to make sure that you're kept in line. And then everything will be built around uh, the new religion, which will be the religion of carbon. This is nothing we haven't talked about. It is, it is, it is the metastasized vision of Gaia as the new religion. You know, I was talking about uh, materialism a little bit on, on Twitter. And started off with a kind of a, a exchange with this, with this fellow. And he was talking about um, how there's been a rash of people who are spiritual, who've just basically said to other people who are feeling sad or vulnerable or out of place, dislocated, like, you know, just fucking nut up you know, get over yourself, just nut up and f figure out what to do. And that that in and of itself was kind of a sociopathic or psychopathic form of spirituality because it didn't take into account the individual and there was no empathy involved. I think he has some, some valid points there, but we are not our emotions. And true spirituality has been traded in for emotionality. And emotionality has been the uh, it has been the elixir and the response for extreme materialism. And what's happened is we've been inducted into extreme materialism. When I say extreme materialism, I'm not even talking about the ability to own material goods and you know have the the, the religion that was built around conspicuous consumption. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that believe in science, right? Science is the final arbiter of what we consider real in defining the material world. That is a version of materialism, also known as scientism. And the only version of the material world that we can agree upon without having our sanity come into question is the one that's defined by people like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci and Bill Gates and Albert Borla. These, the, these are the people that define that world. And if you don't buy into that world, you're problematic. So that's a version of materialism in in a real scientific environment and community and world, the whole idea of science would be expanded. Like there would be an interface between science and spirituality. There are plenty of people who have gone down that path. Like um, Luther Burbank was, for all intents and purposes, a spiritualist and a scientist. He got really into grafting plants and a very interesting character. You get, you get into some of the um, 
really, really bright um, gurus. Sri Aurobindo was fucking brilliant. And he was trying to find that interface between science and the body and spirituality. And that's really where science should go. It, you know, the idea is that, you know, God and creation would reveal his or its secrets to us through the application of science and not try to control the species and put God in a box. That's a whole other operation, right? That is the definition of materialism. So another definition of materialism has to do with equity and that we, not we, as a society, equity can be built into any system and equity ensures equality of outcome. So equity posits that there are people who are disadvantaged. And so you have to rig the system in order for them to have equal footing in the material realm. In the material realm, it has nothing to do with spirituality. It has nothing to do with transcendence. It has nothing to do with people overcoming their obstacles in life. And finding the strength within, which is usually going to be provided by a higher power, i.e. God, right? And saying, I couldn't have done that without, you know, the service of this energy in my life, because I'm just a regular person. But when I understand that I'm a part of this energy, and I give thanks for this energy, and I love this energy... I love this energy as if it is in my own, as if it's my own father. Then guess what happens? Boy, they get more of it. And that's when you find these really inspirational stories where people have incredible odds with their life. And if you really, really dig down, what happens? They find faith, they find power, they find love. And I'm not here to make a pitch for Christianity in that way. Not in that way, but that is there. Like that is where we all need to be. But that's not what equity promotes. Equity says the government is going to be God. The government will be God. And we will provide for those who are less advantaged. And we will give them opportunities and equity points. Meanwhile, we will punish people who theoretically have an advantage. They're playing God. That is materialism. Materialism 101, they're basing a person's individual value and worth on the color of their skin, of their, on their sexual orientation, even if it's one of the 56 versions of gender. That's materialism. It's total materialism. That's why corporations love it. Because corporations want to be provide for the material aims or the material needs for these people who can't transcend that. So what is theoretically the fuel that runs materialism? It's emotions. It's emotionalism. I mean, how many times have you seen the Karen program? There's one now where this woman she's on this plane and she's like giving this young guy shit. Cause he was wearing some Trump gear and she's really reaming him a new asshole. And, and she's asked to get off the plane. 
it's, it's a great moment. And she goes from being really blustery to all of a sudden crying about how she needs to get on a plane because her husband's mother is dying. So emotionalism, which is the fuel of these events, which I'm talking about, that is the thing that powers this materialistic view of the universe and the world that we're living in. Marxism is materialism. It's all based on material worth and material values, haves and have-nots, equity, equity as a stand-in for equality. It's all materialism. Because Marx doesn't, doesn't recognize the spirit. So it's ironic, right? It's really ironic. Because if you go back into the 1960s, you would see that there was a, a massive like, um, pushback against corporatism and materialism. You had people going back to the land. You had people getting away from you know, big, big agra and growing their own food. And in fact, a lot of the people who were part of that 60s movement have major impacts on food and food consumption. The guy who started Whole Foods is one of them. Bruce Idell is another person. Idell Sausage. He was a hippie in the '60s. Even even Ben and Jerry's, their ice cream is shit. They're they're part they're part of that. I mean, probably you go back to the original Ben and Jerry shop. They probably use really good ingredients, better than say uh, Baskin Robbins. Anyway, while you were sleeping, they've been putting the pieces together. for the next step of their operation. So they've got to wind down, or they have to resolve Ukraine. They have to do it. And it's either going to be kinetic. If it's kinetic, then they're, they're just going to use the whole violence and destruction thing as a tipping point. And if they don't pull it back at 1159.59, then they'll just, you know, have some sacrificial cities. The nations of the world will come together, it'll be a big moment of mourning, and they'll have a new system, a new order, and everybody uh, will be encouraged at first to get rid of your weapons. And if not, then you'll, they'll be taken from you. Or they pull back and Russia gets what it wants, everything like east of the river. It looks like um, Zelensky and Ukraine have a, a victory, but it's really a Pyrrhic victory. And that's resolved. Because they can't keep doing this forever. They'll just drain people. They need to fill people back up again with the next emotional event and then start draining them again. I've been wanting to play something for a while. Since, I, since it crossed my... Uh, let me see this. Hold on. Um... Okay. So I think that uh, Network, the movie Network, it might be one of the most perfect movies of all time in, in terms of being able to 
uh, <clears throat> break down the world that we're living in. But it's a few missing pieces away. Just a few. And I think some of that has to do with the, uh, the writer of the script, Patty Shayevsky. I'll just leave that there. Um, so I'm going to play you an excerpt from Network. And it is so prescient, so prescient about where things are evolving and where they're headed. It's kind of, so I'm sure you're familiar with the movie. If you're not, just sit back and watch this scene and um, take it in. Okay, where are we? Right there. Mao Tung Hour went on the air March 14th. It received a 47 share. The Mao Zedong Hour. Network promptly committed to 15 shows with an option for 10 more. There were the usual contractual difficulties. Uh, equal to 20% 2-0, except with such percentages, that'll be 30% 3 for 90 minute or longer television programs. Have we settled that sub-licensing thing? Oh, no. We want a clear definition here. <clears throat> Gross proceeds should consist of all funds the sub-licensee receives, not merely the net amount remitted after payment to the sub-licensee or distributor. We're not sitting still for overhead charges as a cost prior to distribution. Dog! Fuck with my distribution costs. I'm making a lousy 215 per segment. I'm already deficiting 25 grand a week with Metro. I'm paying William Morris 10% off the top. And I'm giving this turkey 10,000 per segment, another five for this fruitcake. And Helen, don't start no shit with me about a piece again. I'm paying Metro 20% for all foreign and Canadian distribution. And that's after recruitment. The Communist Party's not gonna see a nickel out of this goddamn show until we go into syndication. Oh, come on, Lorraine. The party's in for 7,500 a week production expense. I'm not giving this pseudo-insurrectionary sectarian a piece of my show. I'm not giving him script approval, and I sure as shit ain't cutting him into my distribution charges. You fucking fascist! Did you see the film we made of the San Marino jailbreak out demonstrating the rising up of the seminal prisoner class infrastructure? You can blow the seminal prisoner class infrastructure out your ass! I'm not knocking down my goddamn distribution charges! Man, give her the fucking overhead clause. Let's get back to page 22. Five, small a, subsidiary rights. Where are we now? Page 22, middle of the page, subsidiary rights. As used herein, subsidiary rights means, without limitation, any and all rights. So that really... That really sums it up, doesn't it? That really sums it up. That's like Black Lives Matter. The idea there was that was a show that was running on the network called the Mao Tongue Hour. It, it was a reality show that was based on the network hanging out with a radical black insurrectionist group. And to me, that, that, that clip says it all. Because that's essentially what Black Lives Matter was. It was a scripted reality show. And look, look at all the money that the people at the top from Black Lives Matter made. They made a lot of money. And the, what's really funny is that the, the young woman who comes in and starts screaming about fascism, that's Walter Cronkite's daughter. And Walter Cronkite was right at the heart 
of the beast. He was a promoter of the New World Order. And at, at his core, he was full-on Satanist. That's his daughter. It's an interesting placement there, playing the role of uh, Patty Hearst, or at least a stand-in. Great scene. It says it all. And it's funny as hell. Right? And, and then, you know, who are these people? They're Maoists. They're communists. But really, what they really are is materialists. They're so material-bound that they understand completely where all of these charges are going in terms of their program, in terms of syndication. All, I mean, they're just, he's breaking everything down. And that's Patty Shayevsky really skewering this whole kind of uh, socialist, communist grift that was going on. I mean, that's what that was. But little did he know that that's exactly how it would unfold and start to unfold uh, with earnest in 2020. And think of Share Blue and all the money that went into the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Think of all the corporations that contributed to it. I don't have enough time. Maybe I'll get into it tomorrow. But the NFL did something significant. And the NFL, NFL made a, a, a rule change at the owners' meetings that every team must have at least one black or minority individual who's an assistant on the offensive side of the ball. Now, what's really um, ridiculous is that a lot of teams already do. They, they just do. You, you know, you're going to have like a black wide receivers coach or black tight end coach or a black running backs coach or even a black offensive line coach, which is on the offensive side of the ball. But the key word is they included women. Women. Like if you have a woman who is on that side of the ball, you're meeting your quota. I may talk a bit more about that tomorrow because it's, um, again, another sign of the fall of our, of our society where equity replaces equality. And equity, of course, being the maxim for the materialist social Marxists. Not that capitalism hasn't done its damage, because it has. Hello, Federal Reserve. Right? Hello, globalism and corporatism. So, you know, there is the need for a new idea and a new system. But not the one that they have waiting for us which is a cage without a key. All right. That's it for today. Please join me here tomorrow. Thank you for being here, Chatlandia, or Chattaria, rather. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Have yourself a wonderful dancing day. Bye for now.